Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner, always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. Hi, folks. This week, we're doing something a bit different. Rather than our typical interview format, this is a recap of New York Climate Week. I'll share some of my impressions, and you'll hear from folks like Vice President Al Gore, California Senator Henry Stern, several friends and fellow climate travelers. You'll hear some segments from sessions I attended, and sometimes it might sound like you're actually there in a room full of people. If you hear an occasional cough or something, try to just think of it as getting closer to the experience of being there without any risk of coming home with COVID. Over 75,000 people kicked off the week by taking to the streets for the climate march on September 17th. Over the ensuing week, thousands of people from around the world joined over 585 official Climate Week sessions and likely as many unofficial ones. Here's Adam Lake organizer of Climate Week from the Climate Group. It's the 15th year that we've hosted Climate Week NYC, and it is not just the biggest event we've ever run. It is actually officially the biggest climate event ever to place in the world from all time. So it's really, I think it's a really, really big week. I think what I'm most impressed by is seeing the real variety of events taking place where people are discussing actual action. I think we're looking at subjects as diverse as food, environmental justice, built environment, electric vehicles. There's so many experts in New York City coming together, collaborating, but also pushing themselves on how we can do more further and faster. From royalty to resistors, students to CEOs, corporate sustainability leaders, elected officials, actors, attorneys, and artists, investors, inventors, storytellers, scientists, diplomats, and teachers, attendees were as diverse as the climate movement itself today. That is, it includes everyone that cares about the planet and is doing something to protect it. Climate has become the biggest, broadest, and arguably the most important movement in human history. And Climate Week was a massive coming-together moment for us all. Climate Week began in 2009 and was at first a small event trying to piggyback on the UN General Assembly meeting. Sideshow no longer, Climate Week has taken the main stage. New York's ballrooms, exhibition halls, and conference rooms teamed with keynotes, panel discussions, and roundtables. You've got President Clinton interviewing the Pope in a week-long climate science fair that took over New York's Highline Park. There were art shows, workshops, and film screenings, cocktail parties, and river cruises. The New York Times called it Burning Man for Climate Nerds. Here's what Bonnie Gurry, co-founder of Green Portfolio, had to say. This year's Climate Week was unlike any other Climate Week I've attended, mainly because it has become a cool scene. All of our previously nerdy parties 
have really come into vogue. There were so many people who wanted to attend, who were attending, who were throwing events and networking parties. And that was really fun. And at the same time, really useful. In some ways, it was an enormous festival. But it was something else, too. Bringing together thousands of people who dedicate their brains and hearts to battling the climate crisis, who feel the weight of the planet's future on their shoulders, it brings a palpable energy. The hope and fear echo in every conversation. There's the excitement about new commitments, technology, and policies. The undeniable truth that we're not moving nearly fast enough and have a long way to go. Prepared talking points on stage are followed by deep exhales and safe spaces. It's all there. In multiple meetings, I saw people cry. One group burst into spontaneous song. The heaviness of the moment and the effort it takes to remain focused, optimistic, and committed, it's all felt. So too, the spark of inspiration as new ideas lift your spirit with new possibility. And the feeling of community, of being together in this historic fight. One person I spoke to told me this was her favorite week in recent years. She said, This work is so isolating, and now, being with my people, it felt so good. To meet so many passionate and brilliant people, these are my people, and this has been really inspiring. Alex Wright Gladstein, founder of Sphere, shared her take on the week. Climate Week was bursting with energy this year. It was incredible to see how many people were in one place at the same time in New York to talk about climate and to see the real focus that emerged on fossil fuels this year. I've never seen such a focus in a universal way in climate conversations in the past on fossil fuels really being the source of the problem. Everyone was calling a spade a spade, starting with the march to end fossil fuels on Sunday, and then it was a recurring theme throughout the week. A highlight for me personally was meeting Jane Fonda and hearing her say the same and telling everyone how we need to stop investing in fossil fuels. And my favorite part of what she said was, we should stop sleeping with people who are invested in fossil fuels. Let's just get everyone to do it. Let's make it socially unacceptable to invest your money in fossil fuels. I loved hearing that. She's such a rock star. And Climate Week was amazing. Clearly, new ideas were welcome, as were new participants. Here's Nyla Mabro from The Clean Fight, the New York chapter of New Energy Nexus. What's also exciting is the shift in the makeup of who's at Climate Week. There used to be a lot of people who'd been doing this work for a long time. And now there are so many new people who are looking to transition, who recently transitioned into climate. And that new energy tamps down the jadedness and brings new insight and perspective and hope. And that is great. So keep joining the party, people. Meanwhile, at One Ventures, Tom Chi noted that the conversation seemed to be growing up in some ways. The thing I like about this moment is people are getting a lot more real. You know, there was a lot of exuberance about climate investing and the carbon markets and all that kind of thing. And some of those things were out of band with what actually practically works or is true. So I like a moment where things get called out a bit. And I also like a moment where we kind of look at the trajectory so far and we ask ourselves, honestly, are we going to get there or not? People are realizing this will not happen that quickly. Now, it's this weird kind of like combination of you need to act really urgently 
Because if you don't act urgently, it will go on way longer than it needs to. It'll take hundreds and hundreds of years to repair, as opposed to we could get a lot of this done in 50 years. But like, I think in the modern era, we don't think about 50 years as a short amount of time. Even though in practice, like you look at the physics of what it takes for an ice cap to refreeze and for a number of the the damages that we've already created to get repaired, it's like, oh, that's actually already longer than 50 years, guys. So like, we'll have to understand that even in 50 years, we won't have all of it repaired, right? We will be in this kind of intermediate state. So I think the realization that this is a multi-generational challenge, but also the ability to kind of stick with the urgency of it, it's... I won't say that is the main message everywhere yet, but I think the people that are heads down in it are all realizing that and we're getting ready for the 50, 100 years it's going to take. Kirsten Snow Spalding, vice president of the Investor Network at Ceres, noted not just the seriousness of the conversation, but also the alignment of stakeholders needed to drive real progress. I saw a number of things that were different and I think important this year. One was really a shared sense of commitment to addressing climate change. And I saw that in conversations between investors, companies, and policymakers. I think for the first time, the announcements that we heard from policymakers were really designed to align with the commitments and the actions that are being taken by companies and investors. I think a really important shift in the conversation, a sense of collaboration between all of the actors who need to make changes in the real economy. I do want to note that I think this was different. Last year, we heard lots of conversations about commitments and targets. There was concern about greenwashing and accountability. But this year, the conversations were about plans and progress. I kicked off the week in a somewhat surreal way. I work for a company called NationSwell. We're an executive membership network and advisory that helps sustainability and other leaders take on bigger bets and be more successful. We were invited to bring some NationSwell members, like Michael Kabori, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Starbucks, and join Al Gore and other climate leaders in ringing the NASDAQ bell on Monday morning. Ushering in Climate Week by ringing the NASDAQ bell felt a fitting start, as a question on everyone's minds as if capitalism is up for the challenge. Will corporations lead the transformation needed to cut emissions? Here's how the Vice President began the morning. Thank you to NASDAQ for dedicating today's ceremony to what I and many others view as the most important issue of any of our lifetimes, the climate crisis. I'm grateful to be here representing the partnership I co-founded and serve as chair, Generation Investment Management, and to be speaking as one of the many tens of thousands of people taking part in this week of climate advocacy in New York City. As we kick off Climate Week, we find ourselves at a critical inflection point. We are suffering horrific and rapidly escalating consequences of the climate crisis. Our world has just experienced the warmest months ever measured with instruments, including what scientists believe are the three warmest days in at least 125,000 years. This is our moment of truth. Will we take the action necessary to safeguard humanity's future. We can. We must. And I believe we will. While we have much more to do, the tide is beginning to turn, and so are the markets. 
My partners at Generation and I believe very strongly that you don't have to trade value for values. The companies that are leading the clean energy transition are proof of that. But the work of solving the climate crisis is not solely the work of companies producing solar panels or developing novel alternatives to fossil fuels. The transition to a net zero economy requires action within every business. So I'm here not only to ring this historic bell, I'm here to recruit you, all of you. The actions we take in this decade will determine the future world we leave for our children and grandchildren. So let's get to work. Thank you. And thank you, NASDAQ. After the bell ringing, it really started to feel like Climate Week. Coffee and refreshments, networking, and some really thought-provoking conference sessions organized by the NASDAQ team. The vice president started us off with his assessment of the state of climate progress. But anyway, what's changed over the years? Not enough is the short answer, but quite a lot is also part of the answer. We're in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that's powered in part by the new information technologies, uh, AI, machine learning, and also the the revolution in biology and genetics. Now you're seeing the manipulation of electrons and protons and atoms and molecules and proteins and peptides and genes with the same proficiency that the IT companies have demonstrated in managing pets. And this sustainability revolution is likely to have the scale of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution. And it's really coming on very fast. However, the crisis is still getting worse, faster than we are deploying the solutions that are available. We are putting 162 million tons of man-made heat-trapping pollution into the thin shell of blue oxygen around the planet, which is just, you know, five to seven kilometers high. And we're using it as an open sewer. It builds up there. The average CO2 molecule stays there for 100 years. And the accumulated amount now traps as much extra heat in the Earth's system every day as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding on the Earth every 24 hours. That's insane that we're allowing this to continue. Most of the heat goes into the oceans. It doesn't stay there, with apologies to Las Vegas. And that accelerates and distorts the water cycle. That's why we get these huge downpours, rain bombs, some of the scientists call them now. And the same extra heat also makes the droughts take hold much quicker and last longer and deeper. And the list of horribles with the melting ice and the rising sea level and tropical diseases moving toward the poles to the areas where more people live. And conditions that combine higher temperatures and higher humidity that exceed the levels that human beings can survive. You get the prospect, the Lancet Commission says, that if we don't change quickly, we can have one billion climate refugees and migrants crossing international borders. That could threaten our capacity for self-governance. Look at the xenophobic uh, ultranationalism that comes from a few million. Uh, so I'm sorry, to, you, you, I have a lot of buttons you're going to press here this morning. <laughs> the headline is, uh, this past year, for the first time, the climate crisis has moved to center stage 
in global politics and geopolitics. You see it and hear it everywhere. That's good news. We have also seen impressive new ambition, starting with the United States of America, with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which is really a climate act. The sticker price, or the amount they say it puts towards solutions is $369 billion, but the heavy lifting is done by tax credits that are mostly open-ended, and the demand in this first year has made it clear that it's going to be three times larger than the sticker price. It's probably going to be $1.2 trillion or more. And that is really supercharging uh, the flow of capital into these sectors. We've seen since then new ambition in Australia with a new government and a complete positive reversal of their climate policies. The same with Brazil, with President Lula coming back into office and protecting the Amazon. The European Union, their pre-existing inclination to accelerate the clean energy transition merged with the craven attempts at blackmail by Putin uh, trying to get support for his uh, sadistic invasion of Ukraine. And one of the ministers in Germany said renewable energy is freedom energy. And so we've seen an accelerated response in Europe. So all of that's really good. Now, the bad news is we are still walling off most of the developing countries from access to capital. Second part of your question was, how can private capital play a role? I mentioned all that new deployment of solar and wind, which is incredible. Cost has come down so dramatically. 86% of the financing for those deployments came from the private capital markets. Okay? But it has gone mainly to Europe, North America, Japan, the the modern developed countries, plus uh, China and India. But if you're in a place like Nigeria where solar electricity, I mean, it's a godsend. They ought to be developing it. But instead, when they go to market, the interest rate they have to pay is sometimes seven times higher than what is paid in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. or Germany. Uh, And that means they're really prohibited from gaining access to the private markets when the entire world needs that. Now, there's extra risk there. Of course, you have... uh, Rule of law risk, uh, offset <laughs> risk, currency fluctuation risk, corruption risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the global institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the other multilateral development banks, are supposed to take those top layers of risk off the top of the stack and give them fair access. They have not yet been able to do that. There are reforms underway. I think Banga is a great new head of the World Bank. Uh, Kristalina Georgieva at the IMF is moving forward aggressively. We need the regional MDBs also, and we need the wealthy nations to help with the recapitalization, and we need these institutions to change their leverage ratios, and it can be done without enhancing risk, but they can get more money going into developing countries to power this revolution. The vice president concluded with a shout-out for an organization we featured in a recent episode. Climate Trace. I'm also in pursuit of, uh, with the help of my partners, an organization called Climate Trace, tracking real-time atmospheric carbon emissions. ClimateTrace.org is free. Go to it now. We have every significant point source emission site for greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. At the beginning of COP28, we will announce the (laughs) new iteration a thousand times 
larger. We don't have the backyard barbecues, which there's a very long tail on carbon burning, but there are large companies now using climatetrace.org to change their supply chains to shift suppliers from high carbon to low carbon suppliers. And it is beginning to have a really dramatic impact on procurement and on supply chains around the world. The themes Vice President Gore voiced were ones I heard repeatedly throughout the week. Excitement balanced with alarm. The feeling of better-than-ever momentum with exciting technological progress and the massive support of the Inflation Reduction Act mixed with deep concern, sometimes near panic, that we're not moving fast enough. We'll hear more from the vice president later in the episode, but first, let's go deeper and understand both the reasons for excitement as well as concern, starting with the unprecedented opportunity to invest in climate tech. Here's Katie Ray, CEO and managing partner of the venture firm, The Engine. The opportunities are ridiculously enormous, right? I mean, if you think about how we are going to fully change over our infrastructure to clean energy, you know, you're not talking about trying to knight unicorns and not even deca unicorns. Like, what do we call trillion dollar companies? I don't know, Clay. Clay must know the word. But that's what we're shooting for. We're shooting for companies that will represent how we're going to find energy, how we're going to distribute it, and distribute it to people all over the world, not just in developed nations. So if you think it's such a fascinating set of conversations before this about the developing world and energy, but areas that I'm super interested in are very low cost, very clean forms of energy. So if you think of deep geothermal or fusion, these are types of energy sources that could be put almost anywhere in the world, and we need it. And these are going to be the biggest companies of the future. And so that's a, an area I'm interested in. But it's not as narrow as that, right? We have to look. I think there are opportunities across decarbonization, how we grow everything, how we're going to distribute healthcare and medicine. These are all related to climate change and what's coming in the future. So I consider myself incredibly lucky because we are going after very, very large opportunities. And we're at a sea change in these companies starting to get to manufacturing and become very real, which is why big capital is coming towards them. I'm a seed investor, but now you are seeing very, very large pools of capital turn this into the reality that we need for climate change. Katie was followed by Jeff Johnson, managing partner of Temasek, who shared an example of the type of company he's excited about. One of the very first investments we made was in a company called Solugen. It's a company down in Houston that makes industrial chemicals from enzymes instead of fossil fuels. And what I love about Solugen is that some of their first customers didn't even know that they reduced the carbon intensity of their products by 90% relative to incumbents. These were oil and gas guys who had two questions. How much does it cost? Does it cost the same? And does it work the same? Oh, and it's made right here in America? All right, let's do it. And over the last five years, Solugen has built a nine-figure revenue business with software-like margins, selling a product that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere instead of emitting it. And they're going to work their way, one by one, down the list of the biggest chemical products in the entire world to build one of the biggest players in a trillion-dollar industry, and which is one of also the dirtiest industries in the world, selling to customers that aren't there because of guilt or shame. They're there because the products are just better, 
faster, cheaper, and stronger than the thing that they're replacing. And so for us, I think for many of the people here, that's the prototype. Clay Dumas of Lower Carbon Capital shared his thoughts on why, throughout the economic downturn, climate investing has remained more resilient than other venture spaces. There's a reason that climate has outperformed the rest of early stage tech. Let's start with the fact that culture has just shifted from boardrooms to kitchen tables, and people realize today that lower carbon is just in their pure economic self-interest. It is also based on a recognition that independence for energy and raw materials and critical inputs to our economy is as much a matter of national and economic security as it is about climate security. It doesn't hurt that through the IRA, we're about to pump a trillion dollars into the U.S. economy to help accelerate this entire space, and we're going to add hundreds of billions more from Europe and Korea and Japan and India and Brazil and Canada, and frankly, any economy that has its eyes open right now. Finally, there's another trend here, which is that you have a, just a very rapid movement of talent into climate. Speaking personally, I have never been busier. This space has never seemed as big to me as it does today. And it's part of the reason that at Lower Carbon, we were able to, we just announced this, raise another $550 million to keep investing in founders that have a reasonable ambition to go solve the very biggest problem of our time. When I think about that question, the way that I respond to it is by saying the headwinds that a lot of the rest of the economy are facing right now are tailwinds for a lot of the sectors that we're investing in. From our standpoint, this is just something that people are starting to pick up on and they get it. And it's not just venture capital that's driving the opportunity for climate tech. Clay talked about the unique opportunity for climate founders today. I think the first thing that I would tell founders that are thinking about raising their round of capital right now is don't just go speak to other VCs. Try to understand the full capital stack that's going to be available to you. One of the cool things about investing in the space that we invest in is a lot of founders are taking deep technical risks, but they're not taking market risks. The demand curves are known. Buyers are out there saying, you can supply to us cement that has this performance with these properties at this price, we'll buy it. And founders can turn around and take those contracts and board purchase agreements and go to lenders and banks and strategic partners and go get financing that's less dilutive than venture dollars in the early stages. So from our standpoint, before you, or as you go and speak to venture investors on what it's going to take to raise that seed round, Go talk to the folks downstream to understand how quickly you can graduate from venture dollars and to the stuff that's going to help you get really big. But successfully decarbonizing is going to take more than just successful ventures and sustained investor interest. Our dependence on fossil fuels is a systemic problem, deeply interwoven into the fabric of our society and economy. And real progress will require not just new technologies being developed and scaled in isolation, but they'll need to connect. Here's Ian Samuels, founder and managing partner of New System Ventures. 24-7 carbon-free energy on an hour-by-hour basis across the globe. It's going to require a massive number of solutions coming together that need to work together as opposed to in conflict with one another. And that includes firming renewables with long-duration energy storage, developing dispatchable baseload clean energy such as geothermal, fusion, fission, hydro, and others and being able to better match the supply and demand of electrons on a, through time and space by having a more transactive and intelligent energy grid. And then lastly, creating the financial systems and structures that will enable investment 
through different capital structure instruments into each part of that. While there's relatively easy money to be made amidst the climate transition, only focusing on the low-hanging fruit won't adequately finance the enormous change that's needed. Al Gore's partner, Colin LeDuc, talked about that funding gap and how they're approaching it through what they're calling climate-led investing. There's plenty of climate finance flowing. The problem is it's going through financially kind of driven mandates, investment mandates. As a consequence, that money is ending up in safe investments, let's say, in renewable energy infrastructure in North America, for example, or in climate tech. And what that misses is everything else that needs to be decarbonized. So heavy industry, all the hard to abate stuff, steel, cement, aviation, shipping, all of the global south, all the nature-based solutions do not naturally fit in to investment mandates that are purely IRR-driven. So the finance industry as a whole needs to basically innovate. So we, the finance community, are very good at optimizing risk and return. So the last kind of 20 years of generation has, we've been trying to prove that you can make better long-term financial returns. What we now need to do is actually also make at scale impact. And the ESG movement is getting a lot of heat right now, as is you know, sustainable investing as a whole is, for having demonstrated that risk and return optimization part of the job, but uh, has failed miserably on the impact side of the job. And we basically believe that is because the objective of investing needs to evolve to delivering impact, not just risk and return. What Just Climate does as an investment business is it has the North Star of decarbonization, well, and if you, our ambition is to avoid and remove uh, a gigaton a year by 2030, we think that's going to take about $50 billion. To get $50 billion, we need to deliver fiduciary returns. Right? We need to deliver appropriate financial returns. So do not misprice risk. So what you do is you start, we talk about this as climate-led investing, where essentially you are looking for the highest positive climate impact in a timely manner, at a scale that is relevant to the climate. And then you are looking for those opportunities that you can underwrite commercially. So traditional investing, even sustainable investing, basically starts with how do I make 20% return? Okay. And then sustainably, and you basically invest to hit that 20% number, and you hope that the impact is positive. Okay. That's not always the case, because investors will optimize around the financial objective, not around the impact objective. That's why there's so much greenwashing in the most of these climate funds are not climate funds. Because the objective is to make money, it's not to make impact. Sometimes there's an overlap, but not always. What we try to do is flip that equation around and start with that goal. And how this manifests very practically for the investment team is that 100% of the performance fees of this fund are linked to impact. Okay, We think this is where carry is going. So most private equity investors basically have a 2 and 20 model or whatever it is, and they basically just make loads of money off the carry. And that's got nothing to do with the impact they generate. It's all to do with how much money they make. Right? So what we've said is, even if our investment team makes 50% IRR, if they don't make the impact objectives that we have agreed with our clients who are pension funds, they will not get any money. So what that does for a deal maker is it really focuses them on delivering impact. So. I think just to sort of practically bring that to life, I would urge the finance community to evolve their incentive structures to absolutely include impact. That's what we're doing at Just Climate. Colin's call for the finance community to evolve 
is really aimed at private equity and venture investors. The need for broader change in finance, however, was echoed and supported at Climate Week by the U.S. Treasury Department as Secretary Janet Yellen announced the Principles for Net Zero Financing and Investment. In launching the principles, Secretary Yellen made several points that are worth mentioning. First, that there are over $3 trillion in annual investment opportunities associated with the transition to net zero. Second, that without considering climate change, financial institutions risk being left behind, stuck with old business models and missed opportunities. And finally, that more than 650 institutions representing roughly 40% of global financial assets have made net zero commitments. Over 100 of those institutions are in the U.S., The new principles aim to address their need for more clarity and consistency around these commitments, and the principles also seek to help firms that have yet to make commitments get started. Kristen Snow-Spalding from Ceres weighed in on the importance of these principles. We heard Janet Yellen's announcement, her plan for net zero, and we really saw investors responding to that, saying, yes, we are going to put out our investor climate action plans. We know that companies are going to be issuing their plans and aligning them with the science, not just saying, here's what we'd like to do, but here's what we are planning to do. Here's where our expenditures are going to go. And they're going to do their lobbying to align with the commitments and the plans that they've made. Of course, Treasury wasn't the only department showing up at Climate Week with ideas of how to accelerate the climate transition. Here's Dr. Vanessa Chan, Chief Commercialization Officer for the Department of Energy and Director of the Office of Technology Transitions. There's like almost a trillion dollars right now through Uncle Bill and Auntie Ira, right, to get things out the door. But in the end, it's really the 23 trillion in the private sector that's actually going to commercialize things. I come from the private sector, and there's only really been twice in a handful of times, in my opinion, that the nation has gotten together to really do something at the scale and at the speed that we need. Once is with the Manhattan Project, and another time was when we were trying to hit Moore's Law. So the founder of Intel, Gordon Moore, said that we have to double the number of transitions on a ship every two years. In order to do that, Semitech created a roadmap to get the entire ecosystem together, including competitors, to say how they're going to get the CMOS process to actually get to the place where we are now. And they did it brilliantly. Inspired by those two things, as Bill and I were being formed, the Department of Energy really evolved. I joined a day one with President Biden, and I would say who DOE is now is completely different than who we are now. And the reason why is not just because of Bill and Ira, but also we have now a department administration that's focused on commercialization. And commercialization is moving from research to development to demonstration deployment. And so really what I've been doing as a steward of commercialization for this department is asking myself, how do we use that half a trillion or a trillion to buy down risk to the point where the private sector is willing to take over. Because ultimately, as many people talked about, it's an ecosystem and village that has to work together. And I think the role of the government is to buy risk down to the point where the private sector will be willing to take a little more risk than they know they're willing to, but actually get us to the point where we get things out the door. And so one of the things that we developed was the Pathways to Commercial Liftoff. And it's very exciting. You guys should go to liftoff.energy.gov. That's liftoff.energy.gov. And we have eight reports, three of which were just published today. And these eight reports are talking about the commercialization roadmap, similar to what we have with Semitech, on how to get hydrogen, nuclear, long-duration energy storage, virtual power plants, carbon management, 
chemicals and refining, industrial decarbonization, and steel, I'm sorry, and cement. How do we get all those things out the door at the cost point we need to so consumers will buy it? So the exciting thing is through these roadmaps, we're trying to get the entire ecosystem aligned, just like Semitech did, just like we did Manhattan Project, and really understand what it's going to take for these to get to market and actually reach the real world. So innovation has always been a big part of the Department of Energy. We have 17 national labs, which are the crown jewels of the U.S. If you ever get a chance to go visit one of them, you'll be blown away by the amount of innovation that's actually being done. I think what's different right now is that we understand, many of us within the Department of Energy, that to actually get things to market is not just about R&D. R&D is absolutely critical because it's the front stage of it, but it's the other stuff that can be harder. It's demonstration to deployment, especially on the demonstration side when you can have technology where you have a proof of concept and the scientists and engineers have actually shown how it works, but to actually get in the real world, there's all these other things that really matter. So oftentimes I heard a couple of panels talk about technology milestones we have to hit. You can get to technology readiness level nine, which is a uh, framework that is used by many to advance commercialization, but that is insufficient for deployment. So we have created here at OTT something called adoption readiness levels where we are trying to understand all the other things besides technology that has to happen in order to bring things to market. So anyone who's had to do permitting and siting knows that you can have something that works. We can't get a permit. It doesn't get out there. You can invest something where you actually can't make money off of it and consumers won't buy it. It doesn't work. And in the end, commercialization is actually really simple. It boils down to three things. It doesn't matter if you're trying to sell consumer products to kids or you're trying to sell hydrogen. It goes down to three things. One is, are you solving a problem that someone cares about? Two, are you able to sell it at a price point where someone's willing to pay for it? And three, can you get it in the hands of the customer at a price where every single person in the value chain can make money? And at the 10,000-foot level, commercialization boils out to those three really, really simple things. And I think the key for us is how do we align everyone in the ecosystem of clean energy to get us there? And that's where the adoption readiness levels is important. That's where the Pathways to Commercial Liftoff comes in. We need the same language. We need the same hymn book. Needless to say, we need more than innovative startups and supportive investors. Large corporations have a critical role to play. And Dr. Chan pleaded for them to step up. Please, please, please stop being risk averse. We don't have time for you to be risk averse. In my decades of doing commercialization, basically we have a chicken and the egg, which is the supply chain does not want to set up unless they know they have an offtake agreement and demand is there. Demand doesn't want to sign an offtake agreement unless they know the supply chain and parallel supply chains have been created so they don't aren't beholden to one as a monopoly. We don't have time for this chicken and the egg. And that's another reason why last week there's a request for a proposal where part of the hydrogen hub money, there's a billion, half a billion to a billion dollars being used to actually activate demand. We're trying to get people to understand we know there's risks on the offtake agreements, but through this demand mechanism, we're trying to bridge the gap between what a consumer is willing to pay and what the cost will be at the time when you're ready to deliver. So right now, I think the federal government, with a lot of folks like myself who come from the private sector, who make capital investment decisions, is trying to use the bill and iron money in a way that gets us to the point where the risk has gotten down and we can actually get the private sector to engage. But we need the private sector to move towards us. We need you guys to be less risk averse and to actually think about ways in which you're going to maybe 
not get the ROI that you want, not hit the hurdle rate you want, but have the impacts that we need. Because the end is the catalysis of this is where you start driving down the cost curve. It's the hardest or the first few steps to take, and I need the private sector to take these steps with us. And I think one of the challenges CEOs oftentimes, their average tenure is like four to six years, and the investments we're asking them to make won't hit in their timeline as a CEO. So the other call to action is board of directors is to ask them to move the CEOs. We have a long-term game here, and we have to think beyond just the personal incentives at the top. A new theme for Climate Week this year, and something that was definitely exciting to hear about, was how recent policies like the Inflation Reduction Act have helped companies make the kind of investments Dr. Chan feels are so needed for commercializing and scaling climate tech. Here's Mark Kroos, GM of Sustainability Solutions at Microsoft, talking about some of their recent investments. Last year, we contracted for 13.5 gigawatts of power purchase agreements, and we will continue to do that. So one of the things that the IRA has enabled us to do is do partnerships with, so Korean-based Q-cells make solar panels. So they're based in South Korea, We set up a deal with them, a partnership, where they're manufacturing them in a historically red state, Georgia. That deal alone is 2.5 of the 13.5 gigawatts. So it's just a a huge tailwind. There's a lot of texture to the deal. It's got co-innovation and manufacturing and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think the role of corporates is to send a demand signal. Is say, if you build it, we will buy it, right? So we've done this with Heirloom in the last couple of weeks and many other things. So we're there helping build it, definitely saying we'll buy it. What's fascinating from the place we sit is that we get to see this as an investor and as a buyer, and from both sides. And did you feel you were welcome with open arms in Georgia? We actually were. You know, I mean, it, there's jobs. There's tech, it's a new type of worker, there's training and skilling needs. I mean, it's, it checks all the boxes for, I think, the intent of the Inflation Reduction Act. Microsoft is not alone in taking advantage of the IRA. Here's Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens Corporation. In the United States, over the last four years, we've invested $3 billion in expanding our U.S. operations. We're a large and growing organization, 45,000 employees today, resident in all 50 states and U.S. territories. And what's been interesting is just as the government sends the demand signal and as the capital markets have reoriented themselves to flow in the direction of the things we know need to get done, Siemens has been there to double down on our part. Give me some examples. We need switch gear. And maybe not everybody in this room understands what switch gear is, but electricity must flow through data centers. It only happens with the electrical products that are produced by a handful of manufacturers. And we've had to expand manufacturing in South Carolina, in Texas, in Southern California. We're doubling down to make sure we can meet the demand and expanding factory capacity itself. We're building solar inverters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because people who are, what did you call it, Sustainability Acceleration Act? Yeah. Yeah. People who are saying, wait, I want to maximize my results there, are saying, I want it made in the U.S. And so we partnered with Sandina, one of our contract manufacturers, and they're helping us. We made a commitment to manufacture a million EV chargers in the United States in these next several years. So in Wendell, North Carolina, and then expanding to Carrollton, Texas, it's all happening. That's just our own operations. Maybe one of the most exciting things that's going on right now is the battery manufacturing sector. Now, we all know batteries have been manufactured for a long time, but 
Do you have any idea how much battery capacity is needed in order to support the transformation of our vehicles and, and get to electric? Turns out we've got to produce a seven-fold increase in the next seven years. And so battery manufacturers are establishing new operations. What we're doing at Siemens is bringing the digital world to bear so people can model and test and check before they actually start building so that when they build, they get the most production as possible. Oh, by the way, did you know they need electricity too? <laughs> so everywhere we look, the future is electric and connected. And that's why we need greater and greater capacity of the kind of technologies we've been focused on. The need for a sevenfold increase in battery capacity in the next seven years is a great reminder of how early we still are in the energy transition and how important the IRA will be in accelerating the market. Here's Mark Kroos again from Microsoft with another tangible example of how the IRA is making a difference. We've been out there as an early pioneer in a lot of these areas. When you think about being carbon negative by 2030, not only are going to be carbon negative by 2030, by 2050, we're going to get more negative in years between 2030 and 2050. We will be more negative every year enough to account for all of the historic emissions from 1975 to 2020. So by 2050, from an atmospheric perspective, it will be if Microsoft never existed, right? So when you have to do that, you know, and you take the net zero or the net negative, there's really only two verbs, reduce and remove, durably remove. The Inflation Reduction Act helps on, on both sides of that. And we always believe that companies should endeavor to reduce deeply. You can't just remove your way out of the problem. You know, reduce deeply everything you can. And for us in data centers, that's you know, low-carbon concrete and low-carbon steel and more efficient chips, obviously renewable energy and the way we handle water. I mean, there's just so much about that. I say data centers, a company has other missions, but that's just the easiest one to focus on. On the carbon removal space, the Inflation Reduction Act is just helping build supply. And just as a shocking statistic of how supply constrained this market is, Microsoft's emissions are three one hundredths of one percent of global emissions. Last year, we purchased fifty percent of the global supply of carbon removal. So we have a market that's in the hundreds of millions that needs to be about two trillion dollars by twenty fifty. So if you look at something like Climeworks, we partnered with uh, Swiss-based Climeworks last year. I had the pleasure of going to Hellscheiding, Iceland to see the plant, you know, and it's sucking carbon out of the air to these giant vacuum cleaners and filters and stuff. That is the champagne of carbon removal, right? And it's a very high cost of goods product, probably about $400 a ton. The Inflation Reduction Act provides a $180 per ton subsidy. So if you're creating a product with a COGS of $400 and all of a sudden it's 220 that's a good thing. And more people will do it. So this virtuous cycle of supply, you know, demand signal, more supply, more demand, more supply. And the IRA is just a massive catalytic moment for that. Unfortunately, not all companies are as ambitious as Microsoft or see the opportunity to invest in climate. I attended a session focused on the frustrating reality that most companies are not committing to change. According to a report released by Climate Impact Partners, global Fortune 500 companies are responsible for 40% of emissions, and only 40% of them have 2030 targets. What about the others? Well, 20% don't report at all, and sadly, the other 40% are still increasing emissions. 
There's a lot more in the reports, which you can check out at climateimpact.com. But here's the worst part. Corporate commitments have completely flatlined. Here's Rebecca Fay, CMO of Climate Impact Partners, explaining more. Between 2019 and 2022, increases in significant climate commitments by the Fortune Global 500 have been between 20% and 50%. However, between 2022 and 2023, there was only a 3% increase in 2050 goals and no increase in the 2030 targets. In this decade, when climate action is so critical, that's disappointing. We need everyone to step in. So how do we deal with the slowdown in corporate action? One important lever is, of course, again, policy. For months, we've been waiting for the SEC to roll out its expected rule change that would require large companies to disclose their emissions. Well, guess what? California just beat them to it. The California legislature passed several climate bills just before Climate Week, and just at the start of Climate Week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced he'd sign them. California Senate Bill 261 requires companies with over $500 million in annual revenue to disclose climate-related financial risks. And Senate Bill 253, the Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act, requires all companies with over a billion dollars in revenue to report on their scope one, two, and three emissions. Here's California State Senator Henry Stern. It shouldn't be a political risk to look at climate risk. Corporations are being bullied right now. Financial advisors, asset managers, our pension funds, they're all sort of being bullied by this strange version of economics that says, well, I'll be better off if you just put your heads in the sand and pretend there's no wildfire coming or that that bomb cyclone's not real or that the floods aren't here on our doorstep. It's a strange know-nothingness that has taken over at least some of our politics in a conversation where stepping up on empowering corporations to address climate risk, like in our legislation, SB 261, as well as 253 and some of the others, that you have to actually take a chance. And I want to acknowledge Mindy and Ceres for being brave about this, because when you're subject to, say, a witch hunt from the House GOP, that is literally actively subpoenaing not just these organizations, but our own pension funds and claiming that there's some cartel out there on climate when it's actually the oil cartels that are funding that disinformation campaign. It's a dangerous time for truth in that regard. And I truly believe that the markets are up to the challenge. And this is one place where as much frustration as we may have that corporations aren't doing more. I think they needed us to speak loudly and clearly and to make space here to say the fourth largest economy in the whole world is telling you that it's not just the UK and Japan and Europe and Canada, that America is with you. And if you want to step up and innovate and you want to go deeper into your supply chains and you want to show the world what you can do, what a carbon neutral watch looks like, or even carbon neutral milk looks like, or a carbon neutral pair of jeans looks like, or what a whole asset management portfolio can look like, I hope we've made some space. And I think this Biden administration has been brave on it, but I know the politics are hard. And when you listen to Vivek and DeSantis and all the rest talk like this about something seemingly as arcane ESG, climate disclosure, why are they threatening, right? Like Because the truth 
is real. And it's go- that risk is there. We're so close to a transformation. I just, I hope these bills help push us over the top. And we go into a phase of American job creation like we've never seen before, of insourcing, of looking for carbon treaties and partnerships across the world. And I think we're on our path. Mary Kreisman, CEO of California Environmental Voters and prior guest on the podcast, summed this up nicely. We know we're the fourth largest economy in the world. We can use our market power to make global impacts. So right now, if you're going to do business in California, you got to disclose your emissions. These new policies were supported by a coalition of companies. Amongst those companies is Salesforce, who is a climate leader that has been investing not only in its own net zero strategy, but also by helping its enormous universe of clients and partners use technology to become more sustainable. And during Climate Week, in partnership with the Climate Policy Initiative, they launched a corporate climate finance playbook to help companies unlock multiple forms of capital to accelerate climate action. Stay tuned for a future episode with the team at Salesforce to hear about their playbook and much more. Meanwhile, another theme from Climate Week was the intersectional nature of climate with other issues. Two announcements from the U.S. Department of Energy reflect how investing in climate solutions can also improve our communities, create jobs, and improve education. Here's prior invested in climate guest Chris Castro, Chief of Staff at the Department of Energy. Our office made two major funding announcements to advance climate action at the state, tribal, and local level, including $400 million to improve building energy codes and help raise the floor on new residential and commercial construction across America so that it's more efficient and more resilient. And in addition, we joined the White House to launch the new American Climate Corps program aimed at training upwards of 20,000 young people in green jobs and jointly announced the next round of career skills training grants aimed at supporting nonprofit-led partnerships with industry and labor organizations to create programs where students can currently receive classroom instruction and on-the-job training to obtain industry-related certifications and help them install energy efficiency building technologies. Sunrise Movement co-founder Miles Goodrich adds more context on the long-awaited and hoped-for Climate Corps announcement. The American Climate Corps, which is a climate jobs program for about 20,000 people to put America to work in actually carrying out the task of decarbonizing the economy. This has been a basically the signature policy demand of Sunrise Movement since President Biden won election in 2020. And finally, we took a step forward to making that a reality. I think there are still some serious questions around how much funding the program is going to get and how big it can get because the national project of decarbonization is just so huge. But it says a lot that the administration is taking seriously the connection between ramping up clean energy usage, scaling down fossil fuels, and putting America, and particularly young people, to work in this national task of decarbonization. I think those three things together really form sort of the kernel of the Green New Deal and speaks to the power that the climate movement has built over the last few years. Climate's intersection with pretty much every other issue showed up at Climate Week in other ways, too. There were events on health, on AI, on food and agriculture, on national security and pretty much anything else you could imagine. And not surprisingly, nature came up constantly. Here's Johanna von Ritter from Align Impact. Something that was really interesting to see at at Climate Week this year was the presence of nature-based solutions. 
Even climate people for many years weren't really thinking about the nexus of biodiversity and nature with climate change. Now it seems that both nature-based solutions as a standalone issue and nature on its own as connected with climate change are becoming really well known and are taking their rightful place on the main stage alongside climate change. We can think about climate change and biodiversity as a Venn diagram with some challenges and solutions overlapping between the two and some challenges and solutions separate. But it was really great to see that nature was taking a spotlight. And we saw that through many different ways throughout the week. On Monday, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, the pure disclosure taxonomy and system to the TCFD, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, they on Monday published the last of their 14 recommendations, which means that it is now time for companies to adopt the framework and start disclosing nature-related risks the same way that climate-related risks have now started becoming mainstreamed. So that was a really exciting development. The Nature Positive Hub was really exciting. It was packed with events all week long, and it even had an entry line that went around the block towards the beginning of the week with so many people trying to get in. Another marker of nature being on the on the spotlight, there was both a biodiversity hub and a biodiversity summit, two separate events on the same day, which I think is also indicative of how much space and time nature took this year. And what's particularly exciting and interesting is that it was not only nature coming into the spotlight, but oceans also. And we all as humans, as land-based animals, tend to have a bias of when we think about nature, thinking about forests or grasslands or other land-based solutions. Yet in this climate week, oceans took their rightful place in the middle of the nature discussions. Oceans generate half of the oxygen that we breathe, absorb 90% of the heat that we've generated since the Industrial Revolution. The ocean really is our ally and yet it's been quite overlooked by both climate and biodiversity folks for quite some time. Don't be mistaken. Talking about nature isn't fluff. There was real work being done and some real progress was made. Here's prior guest, ocean advocate and co-creator of Ocean Uprise, Bodhi Patil, sharing what happened. From the voice and representation of the ocean, three key updates to share. Number one is on September 20th, the High Seas Treaty, a treaty to protect biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, the largest part of the ocean out of side of coastal exclusive economic zones that are in countries' jurisdiction, was open for signatures. About 71 countries, including the U.S. and China, will be signing the High Seas Treaty, helping to protect and establish marine protected areas and marine sanctuaries in the farthest and most remote places on the seafloor and in the high seas in biodiversity and borders beyond national jurisdiction. Number two is incredible commitments by the U.S., by Germany, and by Colombia and UAE have led to the full $200 million of a global biodiversity fund to enact the global biodiversity framework with the Kuming Montreal Protocol established at COP15 to protect and restore biodiversity, which is a huge update. 
And number three is that more young people and intergenerational collaboration is being recognized and embedded into important decision-making spaces. And myself, Bodhi Patil, had the opportunity to speak to 250 world leaders at the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People, specifically focused on the role of young people in driving solutions to protect ocean rights and ocean health. Also calling on signatures and ratifying the High Seas Treaty swiftly by the UN Oceans Conference 2025 in Nice and declaring a deep sea mining moratorium to defend the sea floor, which is a common heritage site and origin of all of life. Those are a few of the actions that we decided on. There are many, many more. Of course, Climate Week also served as an opportunity to get more people informed and interested in climate efforts, to move past the doom and gloom and hear about the work that's being done. Here's Crystal Persaud. CEO and founder of Wild Grid Solar. My by far favorite event of the week is Marketplace of the Future that always happens the Friday at the end of Climate Week. And I think it's the most important event of the week because it's one of the only events that actually invites non-climate people into the mix. So we had a table there for Wild Grid. All sorts of people came. There were kids there, parents there, people who worked in different industries who were coming to see what was happening in the climate space and just to have fun and have conversations. And it was very much not an investor environment, which I loved. And I think so much of our work in climate is unknown to the general public. And I thought being able to talk about the issues of climate to quote unquote regular people who don't necessarily want to quit their job and suddenly work in climate, but should know about what the solutions are. And what about for the climate community? those that are dedicating their careers and their energy to working on climate. Well, we all wish that our travel was carbon neutral and that gathering in person didn't have a climate impact, of course. But to do the work we do, the uphill battle of rewiring our economy and society, the value of a morale boost can't be underestimated. I heard in more than one conversation the idea that just maintaining hope of not collapsing into despair amidst the climate crisis is itself an act of courage that takes concerted effort. So for today's climate leaders to get recharged, that's got to be a good thing. Here's Jean-Louis Warnholtz from Future Green. The headline around Climate Week New York and so many of the climate gatherings all around the world tend to be dominated by the severe and very real threat that we're facing on the climate front. And right, I mean, the message tends to be there's too little action and it's coming too late. This climate week for me, it was fun. It was exciting. There was joy and a real sense of optimism that each and every one of us can do something that has a real impact to be part of the solution on climate. And to me, that was deeply inspiring. I enjoyed this week, right? I didn't leave depressed and overwhelmed. I left really, really hopeful because of the people that I've met throughout events this week. It was great. Climate work is as serious as it gets, but it needs to be fun, at least sometimes, for it to spread. We all know that despite this being the biggest climate gathering in history, the movement needs to keep growing. This brings us back to Vice President Gore. I'm here not only to ring the bell and to say a few words, I'm here to recruit you, all of you. And I'm deadly serious about that. No matter what your view of the climate crisis now, I'm telling you, having watched this for 50 years, you wait a couple of years and you look back at this day, 
you will be shocked at how much more concerned you will be next year, the year after, the year after that. This is the defining challenge of our time. And think of it this way. What a privilege it is to be alive at a time when the generation of those of us alive on Earth in this decade have an opportunity to really make history that counts. And future generations will look back on us. They will either curse us or be deaf, dumb, and blind to the obvious existential dangers, or they will say, thank God they stepped up. Thank God all those uh, companies on the NASDAQ said, yeah, we've got a mission here. And by the way, you don't have to trade value for values because, you know, the old hockey player, uh, the famous one, don't skate where the puck is, but where the puck's going to be. The puck is moving, and you are seeing consumers demand it. You're now seeing investors demand this change. If you work in HR, try to recruit young people today and tell them that you're not on side on the climate crisis. It's a tough challenge. So it is changing. 70% of young Republicans in this country are aghast at their elders' positions on climate. That tells me that generational change is fast moving. So you will know where you individually can make the most difference. I do not. But find that and start making a difference. If you ever have any doubt that we as human beings are capable of rising to this challenge, sure, we have limitations. But remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. Well, you've made it to the end. Thank you for joining this different and admittedly imperfect episode. I tried to include a lot of voices, but if you were there or paying attention from afar, I hope you share your experience with others too. Moments like this need to be spread. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.